Never in the history of the world have the merchants of obscenity had available to them the modern facilities for disseminating this filth. Disseminating this filth. The onslaught of the communist masters of deceit. Bingo. Sluts. Inco. Comma. Sluts. Inco. Comma. Sluts. Inco. Comma. Whoa, Steve's rumbling in. <laughs> no, it, it just sounded like some bonks. So it sounded like you were knocking some shit over on your way in to the podcast. Bonk, bonk, bonk. Yeah. I think that was actually the table I was on. So mm. I'm like kind of providing Foley work for Steve. Yes, beautiful. We, okay, we're going to be a radio show now. Yeah, no, it'll be like some. I wish I had a soundboard, you know. I wish I had a coconut. Yeah, two halves of a coconut. Yeah, two halves of a coconut. So I I can technically one coconut. Yes, imagine Robinson Crusoe on his island with two halves of a coconut. I want to reread Robinson Crusoe. Yeah, I've never actually read it. I was reading about it, and one of the interesting things I learned about it is he's never bored. Yeah, like us, picking up on this exciting Robinson Crusoe uh, dialogue from last time. Yeah, exactly. He's never bored. He's on I ain't island. never bored. <laughs> Well, that's, that's Robinson Crusoe. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly how he's. That's exactly he how he's. He's on his island with his two halves of the coconuts, clicking them together, just singing, "I ain't never bored." Also, fucking pets. Sure, I mean, but he was doing that anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who wasn't? Yeah, friend, right? Friday, right? Yeah, Isn't his indigenous is friend is Friday? Yes, his friend's name is Friday. I think he, like, names his friend that because he showed up on a Friday. What he thinks is a Friday. Clinging to a contrived world. I've read Marx's Crusoeanade. That came up in the Robinson Crusoe study that I've been doing. Oh, really? Yeah. You're doing a Robinson Crusoe study? Well, it's the subject of the second volume of Derrida's The Beast and the Sovereign. And ah, okay. he goes over, because Rousseau was super into Robinson Crusoe. Y- yeah. Crusoeanian. It was like in his, uh, the social contract. It also showed up, I'm pretty sure, in both Smith and Ricardo. It was like a trope that Marx was kind of making fun of uh, among its economic books at the time. Yeah. This is actually a conversation that the three of us have had before in real life, not recorded. Oh, okay, cool. I was pushing for this. So, yeah. (laughs) It's Pinko Comedy Sluts behind the scenes. That's right. Robinson Curry on his fucking island. When we were having pizza when Bunny was semi-homeless. Yeah, like when I was just coming up here and working like three days at a time on a day rate and crashing. Right. That's how that's the origin story of the podcast. Pretty yeah. much. It's the real Amber and Nick Mullen live together story. <laughs>
Wasn't Amber living with Felix also? I thought it was Amber and Felix lived together and then Nick crashed or I don't don't know the exact timeline. You know, someone can reddit this if they need to. So (laughs) fill yourself in. Deep dive. (laughs) This is part of the Pinko Kamisla's lore, though. We're in the lore zone. Yes, along with our unnamed frenemy. But yes, I did crash with you while I was working all piecemeal for a company I eventually came on and got a salary from only to be ruthlessly laid off. Yeah, when the cryptocurrency market just yeah 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 man it is this complicated thing where the people i all worked with immediately i was like this is all above your head you fucking dipshits (laughs) like i can't even pin it on one of the people i saw every day wait what do you mean by it was above their heads So even though I knew the technical CEO, this was a board decision. So this is like an unnamed group of investors who have a stake in the company who meet quarterly. We're like, okay, cut one, two, three, and four, crypto tanked. So you got to make up this situation. And yeah, it was like my boss pretty much like found out and told me a day and a half later. Fucking capitalism sucks a dick because (laughs) I wish I could just be like, oh, he was this fucking shithead because I've worked for a ton of shitheads. Like, I got no problem (laughs) with saying that. But it's like, even though, yeah, he was way wealthier than me, etc. He was super into the show I was producing. Like, he loved it. (laughs) If it was literally just up to him, I know we would have went longer because literally of his pure enthusiasm for the project. That's the thing about capitalism is you all just slog. No matter where you're coming from, you all just slog to a place where you're then giving a choice to exploit your fellow man to be able to order appetizers when you go out to eat. (laughs) It's truly faceless. Almost mystical force that you have to... I mean, I always tell the story when I lost my job at the cult, you know, the fascist Mm -hmm. right-wing cult. It was so bizarre because my boss was genteel, weird, awkward Dutch guy, and he cried when they fired me. Yeah, I mean, like, what are we supposed to do with that? You know what I mean? Like, that's what's so frustrating about the whole thing is it won't even give us, like, the definitive villain in our face to be able to, like, whatever. Like, I mean, that's the way it reproduces itself. It's mm -hmm. like, you can't destroy property. Those are people who own that property, and they're people, too. Here, go talk to them. They're sad because their properties have been burned down. Or here's this person who owned a company who lost his job. He's a real person. Look at him. Tell him he doesn't deserve his job. And we need to go beyond a certain level of humanism in order to resist it. Because I think a lot of the problems with liberalism is that it gives in too much to this humanistic face of evil. Human-centered capitalism. And it requires like your boss to be an evil individual when he fires you when that's not the reality of it. Exactly. The real impersonal cold decisions are always like some degrees removed from you. Like by design. Mm -hmm. 
And unless you're just in a very micro small business tyrant situation where you just work directly for some fucking asshole, which I have also done. Yes. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's a frustrating thing. Like, also, I think back on that time and I really thought because I had negotiated the salary for myself, like I was like, this is it. I'm gonna get a little stable for a while. Well, <laughs> like, I re- yeah, that's a I, dream I like had for that. And I thought that I had a career, a, a journalism career because I had gotten a job with a salary regardless of who it was for. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. damn, I'm set. I'm on the way to being a middle-class PMC mm-hmm. over here. I know. With my cushy... Email job. Yeah, email <laughs> job. <laughs> right? Like, that was the wildest thing about me getting that job is that I was like... When I went up there on a day rate, it was sort of <laughs> so contrived that I didn't really get a feel for it. But once I started started working there on salary and I realized the degree of comfort everybody existed in within the company. Just copious amounts of free food and like parties. Yes. Like all this kind of stuff. I was like, what? And then just how normal it seemed to everyone else where I was like, have you been doing this the whole fucking time? Is everyone around me somebody who's either very young and just entered the workforce in some capacity or has literally gotten to exist in these kind of jobs the whole of their adulthood where we could meet in a casual setting and we would think we were like the same kind of people, quote unquote, right? But then me working in this setting, even though I was voluntarily overworking because I had so much responsibility and whatever, and I had to have all this like huge creative output, but like me realizing how much better even that version of stress was compared to manual labor, waiting tables, like working doubles on doubles, like all these uncomfortable jobs I have worked throughout my days. I've worked in all kinds of different weird entertainment things and some have been very nice, but most of the time they treat you like carny folk. But this was like, I was, I don't know. I want to pick up on something you said, the insidious part when you were like, Uh, you know, me and the other, this kind of recognition of the other person's, I guess, cushy lifestyle and this disbelief at, are you really doing this the whole time? And the thing is that's so insidious about that is that they think everybody else is doing that all the time as well. I felt pressure to pretend as if I had been doing it the whole time, right? I just was lucky that my political mindset was of a way at the time I came there that I just put really good boundaries down right at the offset. And I put a ton of fucking communist jokes in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a ton. Like, And they just let me fucking do it. Like if something was too esoteric for what they were going for, you know. But yeah, me and my one producer, we were just like looking for any angle. Yeah, we chose Elon Musk to uh, sort of make fun of in particular a lot. And they were like, yeah, go for well, it. Well, that's the... Even though they, a ton of the people in the office legitimately, a, sincerely loved Elon Musk. But that's because a, they were fucking tech bros. But that's a, a sort of in, 
a cop out almost. It's like, oh, this is the bad capitalism that we can point to mm -hmm. and say, oh, this person has way too much money. We can all collectively agree with that, even if some of us respect that. They're coming at it from almost a libertarian ethos where um, I did get a sense of like, I was the boss of the creative there. And I knew that like my boss in particular really liked my stuff. He just called me out of nowhere. I worked with him years before and like literally was just like, come to New York and like blah, blah, blah. So that's the thing. I'm like so vulnerable still to this day. If some rich fucking benefactor was like, Bunny, I've come across you and I'd like to be your benefactor. I'd be like, yes, sir. Let's do it, man. Like, Be my I, daddy. I'm like, fucking let's do it. Be my Spengali. What do I need? Like, do you got tips? Like, what's up? I feel it in myself. So I'm also vulnerable to any story where just by my fucking gumption, moxie and whatever the fuck you want to call it someone has thought of me and my particular talents <laughs> like i i do like that idea as well but yeah so it was everyone was liberal generally in the office it wasn't like a conservative place etc so though i did receive as a secret santa gift which i got right you know, as I was being fired or laid off, I got mugs, one of which had a picture of Oprah and it was like Oprah 2020. And the other one was like Elizabeth Warren 2020, which like another girl in the office thought I would like because I was very feminist, right? I was like, oh, well, here's a bright spot is I get to graciously accept this and never com have to comment on it in the office. Because no, I do think that Elizabeth Warren mug, I, I almost never use it because I feel like it has bad juju. I, I think it has snakes that are going to come out of it. I definitely use the Oprah one. I don't give a fuck. But uh, yeah. It's an icon. Exactly. And you know what? There's you some... get a mug and you get a mug. Tony Soprano, in this house, Oprah Winfrey is an icon. <laughs> Yeah, it is a frustrating thing because I see another timeline, another dimension where I didn't get laid off from that job or I got that kind of job earlier in my life, you know? And would I feel the same way politically if I had like a just like really a very modest layer of financial comfort, which is what's the funniest part to me. It's not like, oh my God, they paid for an apartment and they bubble. You know, it's not like at this like move the idea of like a luxury thing. I was like, I paid all my bills on time and I still had like some money left over. <laughs> like, very I, I just exciting. imagine like the Wayne's World trip of like the bands uh, getting popular and like Lance Big Man from Big Man Records shows up <laughs> and is like, leave those saps. Come with me and you'll make $600 a week. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which you're like, all right. And now I'm like, wait, that's minimum wage. <laughs> I, I work a day job. Uh, I was lucky enough to 
have a day job through this pandemic. And they did take us out tonight earlier to dinner. I, they took us to a Brazilian steakhouse. This sounds uh. like an office episode. So yeah, it was the kind where- It was the like, Dundies? Whatever, like I like everybody I work with. This is like the kind of chillest day job situation. <laughs> so I, I mean like, uh, yeah. But um, yes, it was uh, the kind of Brazilian steakhouse meet place where they do just come, you have the cards, you stop, go, and and they just keep bringing you meat until you say no more. So I had a lot of meats. I love Brazilian steakhouse. It's yeah, so this good. is my first time at one, actually. What? Um, yeah, I had never... Uh, Shit was popping in New Jersey. Yeah, I, they only recently came to like Baltimore. I feel like whatever the popular chain one is, only recently came to Baltimore like right before I moved back up here. <laughs> So, like, we did a 420 thing at work because marijuana is legal now in both New Jersey and New York. So we also did a 420 thing today before the steakhouse. And it was the perfect scenario for me to be at that kind of place. It's like I got to have a little tiny bite of all these different meats and sides, which is my dream whenever I'm high. So <laughs> when I was 15... I went to a Brazilian steakhouse. Marlo will appreciate this. And there was a uh, there was a house jazz rock band playing. Mm -hmm. And I was like super into the Grateful Dead at the time. And I requested them to play Turn Your Love Light On. They knew the song, but they didn't know how to sing it. So I got on stage and sang Turn Your Love Light. Turn, well, it's Love Light and the line is Turn On Your Love Light. But I do appreciate the story, Stephen. Yeah. What else is going on? Is there any stupid show on Twitter that I was concerned about recently? Uh, well, the Derek Chauvin. Oh, happened. yeah. Duh. So, that's so. Could do like a dollop, but it's about what's happening right now. And I'm uh, the one who doesn't know anything. And you just explain what's happening right now. <laughs> yeah. Derek Chauvin. So uh, uh, you can be cynical. I am. And really? Yeah, I but never like, would have pegged you as a cynical type. Yeah, I mean, like whatever. Yeah, like, <laughs> you are the you are the Pollyanna of the podcast. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm a optimist generally, but um, sure, it's good. It's surprising. I was surprised. We'll see what happens with sentencing, mm -hmm. and I'll cautiously, but not you know, extremely lean into if I'm going to accept that, you know, the killing of black people on television by cops at a constant rate and then the cops walking uh, has some deleterious effect in what it demonstrates to society writ large about what those in power will do and what that looks like. I will at the same time say that someone at least Getting convicted perhaps is a positive thing in that. So I'll say that. I thought it was interesting that the prosecution made the case and had to make the case that police was good in order to get oh, this yeah. one particular policeman prosecuted. Yeah, no, there was a shitload of what Uncle Slava would call some ideology there, uh, yeah. certainly. Yeah, they were preserving themselves. They had to say policing is they good. They could 
So by arguing police is good, they can argue this guy was particularly out of line Which, and they can martyr him. But yeah, we'll see how he gets sentenced. And, I, I um, do love the use of bad apple in this context because the phrase literally is... It spoils a whole bunch. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, absolutely a phrase that doesn't say and therefore the rest of the police are okay. Well, you have to get rid of the bad apples so that the others can flourish. When really or the bunch like is spoiled. Yeah, really, I feel like it's more like a one bad berry makes the whole bunch nasty. Like, it's it's less of a separate holistic fruit situation and a, a bunch of things that are rotten on the vine. Well, also, <laughs> um, you know, one bad apple literally does spoil a bunch. Mm-hmm. That's... Uh, just how apples work. They release the gas. Works. I just yeah. feel like people could imagine it more if it's a soft little berry and not their average honey crisp. Oh, so. yeah, I mean, they're extremely selective uh, to their honey crisps because one bad one will spoil the whole bunch. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> You're a honey crisp sorter. That's a very important job. Also, you know, Johnny Appleseed was spreading alcohol and just trying to claim land, you motherfuckers. I got to bring this up anytime apples come up. Yeah, the bastard. Uh, Well, also cool, I guess. It's like imperialist. But I always had this like cartoon dancing vision of him as a kid. Well, his name is, to be fair, Johnny Appleseed, and he literally existed and like planted apples and that was his thing mm-hmm. so that is kind of strange. they're all like uh fucking sour fucking whatever apples that were only good for fermenting well yes which, which nice baller <laughs> yeah but also because he planted the apple seeds on places there was like a homesteading thing where then he could be like this is my land <laughs> so it was a uh, one of those imperialism yeah. via fruit yeah I, I wonder if that's already a paper. <laughs> <laughs> fruit imperialism? Yeah, I mean, I feel yeah, like it's I pretty mean, easy. Uh, banana uh, Republic. Banana Republic. Chiquita banana. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, it's like too easy. Maybe there's several. Yeah, there, there's <laughs> several papers on this topic. Uh, fruit so good. <laughs> fruit good. Imperialism fruit good, bad. Imperialism stop, bad. Stop. Speaking of imperialism... Turks. Joe Biden is uh, Joe Biden wants taking... to fight the gray wolves and uh, <laughs> Joe Biden hates Muslims. Joe Biden doesn't know that war is wedding for the Turk. He does know. I'm pretty sure he forgot, though. Yeah, because he's got lead paint poisoning. <laughs> That's a shout out to Jake Flores, who makes a pretty compelling case that Joe Biden probably has lead point poisoning. I mean, he's lived in Delaware. Of course he does. Everywhere that he's lived has had a high concentration of lead. Wait, <laughs> like no, Jake- this is this is bad if we're talking about the Rehoboth Beach house that he has. Because oh, I, you know, I, I know some people with places in Rehoboth Beach, and I would prefer it if there wasn't lead poisoning. Well, sure, but you're talking to somebody from Baltimore City. Um, mm. 
you know, I don't think we had lead in that old house that eventually burned down due to a electrical fire. This is the beginning of what is that scary stories <laughs> show from? Are you afraid of the dark? Are you afraid of the dark? Uh, yeah. No, I was, well, okay. I was going to say like the opening to some indie film character study. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, like Blue Ruin? Yeah, sort of. Where I don't feel at home in this road. You know the movie. Yeah. With I don't feel Elijah at home Wood in this With Frodo world. Baggins. Yeah. Frodo yeah, yeah. Baggins and that lady and yeah. mass violence. Yeah. No, we don't love that movie. Or just like Nomadland. I, I haven't seen it, but it seems like a thing they do in it. No. Everyone has the wrong idea of that movie. Did you yeah. see it, Bunny? I did not watch it, but guys, just sort of time out. I did get a soda stream as a gift. I am drinking a ton of seltzer over here. Well, um, thank a Palestinian indentured servant for that. Literally, my dad was like, but is it okay because of this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, not really, but also whatever. <laughs> Ethical consumption, baby. Yeah, man. Yeah, but also I, I, respect what BDS, but also whatever. <laughs> it doesn't matter. This is like a seven-year consideration of mine. I drink a ton of seltzer, <laughs> um, but I am drinking even more because I can just make it out of the water. You and Ariel both. She's addicted to seltzers. Because one we time are she she tried to bet me. Who, she tried. Who that's need true. bubbles? That's true. Ariel will appreciate being a cottage fairy. As a child, I had a idea that I would like to just have sparkly water and strawberries. <laughs> I'd be fine with just that, which I feel like is a very uh, fairy diet. If mm -hmm. uh, there were to be one, yes. Yeah, Joe Biden's got lead paint poisoning, but he's trying to piss off the Turks for some reason by admitting the Armenian genocide was real. Which uh, our friend Vouch uh, said he liked because it was going to piss off the worst people online, which he doesn't think he's one of, which he's referring to Turkish ultra-nationalist, which uh, he absolutely I come across hasn't. a lot, but I don't know if you're not in like the Balkan Oh yeah, wait, which country is Vouch's people from? That's what it is. Oh, it's a fucking filthy Balkan. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where Vosh's people are from. Yeah, it's the Hassan oh effect. Okay, so uh, at work, we got a lot of Balkans, right? Several of our moving teams are made up of Serbs. We got some Georgians. We got some Azerbaijanis. But then there's a couple remote workers who are working out of Bosnia. And it is literally the Serbian crews are like, these fuckers over there, you know what they do? They get up, shoot off AK-47, fuck around, go to coffee shop, enter calls for moves. <laughs> that was a really good Serbian accent. I got to hand it to you. I'm around it. It's literally... What's the name of your character? It is uh, Nico. Uh Nico. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, like, um, which I loved this criticism of the guys in Bosnia that <laughs> get up in the morning to shoot off AK-47. <laughs> it's what they know. It's, you know, and um, so, yes. And then there was like a conflict at a move once because the property manager was Albanian. <laughs> 
yeah, so that's they, so awesome. I love it yeah. when that happens. It's um inappropriate how much I like it. Is how I put it. Because not only is it funny to me, but it's like I feel in the know, but it's not directly Greek people, so I can be like ha ha ha. ha. Like it's not me for once. Yeah, it's just very funny. And um, But then, like, of course, there's other Americans in the office who are not, like, tuned in to why there would be, like, this dynamic or vibe or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, there was a... There was a war there in the 1990s. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, the, during the Clinton era. Yeah, like a yeah, big one. A big <laughs> one. And, uh, you know, a couple times we blew up a lot of shit that wasn't bad things. <laughs> the Americans did in our helping, you know. Bonnie Thelamis says the Sopranica massacre never happens. No! <laughs> See, this is what's so annoying because there is... So initially, before Milosevic fucking did all the ethnic cleansings, like his initial whatever, Greeks would be aligned with Serbians kind of vaguely because we're both Eastern Orthodox and like whatever. And then like there is a Orthodox Christian, Catholic, Muslim kind conflict in this area just historically but then there is the perception among modern balkans and greeks of stories about who did what during the ottoman oppression right so milosevic effectively exploited the belief that croats catholics and muslims had conspired with the nazis like, during World War II. And that's a very prevalent belief that Muslim people in that area were on the side of the Nazis and, tur and like betrayed people. People who had lived next to, like Christian and Muslim lived next to each other, you know, in these villages forever and then blah, blah, blah. Like there, even, you know, post-Ottoman Empire, there had been a time of peace. And there is this belief that this is a thing. So Milosevic, like... Uh, like his propaganda did sort of effectively mine that to a degree in the beginning. But then once he started fucking ethnic cleansing, uh, the Greeks, to their credit, there was a situation in northern Greece where Milosevic's people were trying to cross through with their tanks. And uh, the Greeks just uh, misdirected them so they got lost <laughs> on purpose. So uh, the Greeks engage in sabotage when they can. Not even for political Reliably. reasons, just when they can. Yeah, I mean, they're just, uh, it's a bunch of fucking Odysseuses out here just fucking around. <laughs> You're trying to make dinner, they'll spike it. <laughs> yeah, man. You're like, I'm vegetarian. They're like, no, you're not. Mm -hmm. Oh, so this is... I guess this will be my jokerification this week. So on Twitter, there was an anthropologist that I've come across before who, you know, I don't particularly dislike or whatever I'm critical of. But she was telling the story of St. George, quote unquote, in a way where she called him a Turkish Roman soldier. 
right? Because he was born in Cappadocia in Anatolia, which is now in modern day Turkey. Oh my God. But the intent of it was to be provocative, to shake up these Western assumptions. You know what I mean? But right. what it actually is, is the success of the Turkish ultra nationalists getting well intentioned Westerners to see the Turkish state as a permanent thing that's always existed and an oppressed being. So where she thinks she's being more provocative and appropriate in a way by labeling him, you know, she could have said Roman soldier born in modern day Turkey or whatever, but she said Turkish Roman. Uh. And of course, somebody's like, what are you? That's not whatever. And she's like, well, he was born to a Greek speaking merchant and a Palestinian woman, you know, and I just am like, this is not it's not doing what you think it is. And also, if you can't call someone Greek in a certain period, you can't call someone Turkish. It's a symbiotic fucking thing. And like neither identity exists if the other like you can't act like the Greek identity doesn't exist. And this is very like, it's part of the project to erase the people that they would like to erase. And it's these insidious little misinformation fucking things. And it's been really successful to a degree, especially because most Americans, unless they are somehow connected to one of the Eastern European, Balkan, Greek, whatever, peoples just are entirely unfamiliar with the history there. (laughs) You are listening to Blue and White Metaxist Slot. No, not Metaxa. The only Metaxa I recognize is the Brandy. Thank you very much. Metaxa was a fascist with a capital F, even though he said no to Mussolini. So, you know. Yeah, well, like all those fascists had a somewhat weary relationship to one another. Nationalism was a new thing, especially in in the nascent Greek state. It's like very fucking complicated and just like acting like it's the same. We're a Metaxist podcast now. Yeah, it's like <laughs> acting like it's the same as what we're familiar with what happened in the Americas in Western Europe is just fucking dumb shit. But yeah, I was like, look, also St. George didn't fight new dragons. So like, let's stop. Let's start there. <laughs> All glory um, to the third Hellenic civilization. But yeah, it's it's interesting because I don't know. I just keep track of this stuff when I come across it. I, I just um, been really picturing you in kind of a sitcom setting, and you're in like a public place with your boyfriend, and you overhear someone say like Roman Turkic saint, and the <laughs> uh, the studio audience laughs as your boyfriend's face drops. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Even if I weren't the little, like, needy half-Greek that I am, I still feel like it's a tremendous injustice. Oh, I mean, that, it's kind that of don't... the funniest goddamn thing she could have said without realizing, from my perspective. I mean, just... <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Constantine. He, he uh, built a city in Turkey. He was Turkish, right? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, fucking rules. Like, I love this. Whatever, man. The modern state of Turkey is the rightful genealogy of the Roman Empire because yeah. they conquered uh, New Rome. So mm-hmm. there's now. 
Yes, exactly. Also, who's that obsessed? I guess maybe are British people very obsessed with St. George, right? Yes, uh, extremely. So, I mean, so that's, I guess that's who the intended audience was, <laughs> is specifically probably right. yeah, no, British. That is exactly. It, it, it's a very liberal British thing to say. That is exactly who it's for. Well, yeah. So it's just like I saw this arguably well-intentioned academic <laughs> anthropologist just totally fall I mean, fucking... How could you be an, an, an academic and not understand what Greek people on because the internet she, will call you if you refer to St. George as Turkish. Yeah, well, no, one, that's you should have known that. Very two, basic. Two, I just feel like, are you... Um, yeah, it's a harebrained liberal bullshit thing, but like, just the optics of St. George being Turkish. Yeah, well, also, I feel like I, I have a specific resentment with the UK. They've done a even further weird mutation version where they, like, there's this British-sized idea of the ancient Greek, you right. know? So that's what I feel like is also in her head, is, like, this pristine white columns, uh, fake ancient Greek, like, even if you don't know, the beautiful Parthenon, etc., was not pristine and white. It was, like, painted all kinds of, like, fucking colors because they were, they're fucking ethnic sun people. And you know how you know that? <laughs> because all of the uh, curators at the British Museum did their tests and told us. <laughs> yeah, well, not just that. Because and if you left it in Greece, you guys would have sold it for like a shitty car or something by now. Except how did we keep the navel of the universe in Delphi? We have the other half of the marbles. You guys would have gone through your economic crisis and next thing you know, all these ancient treasures would be in the back of some dude's trunk like, hey, you want some ancient treasures? Yeah, I mean, that is their argument. But, uh, you know. We need to um, finance our wild it, socialist it a, programs. Well, in a funny way, they are the most resistant at giving back the marbles they've given back some things to other places <laughs> but they they like we got them fair and square when the ottomans stole them from you and gave them to us <laughs> yeah. like that's the argument you know and that's part of this turkish ultranationalist project is to erase the legitimacy of the identities of the people they'd like to oppress so they really like to troll in places where they can act like greeks never existed like greeks are made up and there was only ever disparate greek-speaking people but that was just the lingua franca which you know it was for a long time to a degree but it doesn't mean there wasn't a shared hellenic culture and you know whatever yeah that's a thing i i see and people are vulnerable to it and you know what it's what's got me jokerified this week <laughs> i'm also trying to what kind of eastern european is vouch <laughs> that was my jokerification was the debate that happened on wednesday yeah. with destiny Des steven <laughs> steven <laughs> <laughs> my yeah. name and phd the big dick mm -hmm. dick wolf 
Yo, yeah. Matt, do the dun dun there. Yeah, do, do <laughs> the, the dun dun. Gotta do the dun dun. Dick Wolf us, man. Give us some of that Dick Wolf. <laughs> the famous uh, producer of Law and Order, yeah. Dick Wolf. Stabler's back. <laughs> yeah, I watched the initial return. It's I also insane. saw Stabler in, his big in real butt. life. And yeah, I think we already talked about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think I brought it up before. I drove so by because they're filming near where I deliver. Mm-hmm. organized crime in Prospect Park area and I saw Stabler's big ginormous veiny head <laughs> yeah. but yeah the Destiny Richard Wolf debate that had me uh, in a word jokerified not the debate itself the debate was just like a teacher schooling a child who had maybe read a capitalist economics book like once and just a tour de force but what jokerified me was everyone who said that child won the debate. They were calling uh, Dick Wolf a tanky. Yep. <laughs> Which is really Insane. silly. Insane. It's extremely silly. Well, I, you know, it just shows how, you know, as much as I want to be educated and et cetera, it's always nice for something like this to remind me that like most people who are like caping around in this area are just what the what is happening here? They're just throwing shit around. Uh, I want like, I mean, to so unpack to the capitalist conditioning that anybody who meets the like fucking bare minimum of like uh, just oh this guy's young <laughs> this you know what I mean like it seemed like these intangibles worked in his favor for those people who were like taking a side I didn't well, watch the whole thing but I did watch some of it and I and then I'm looking at the comments and I'm just like what uh, there is a disconnect there is yeah. such a disconnect between what was going on in their I was going to call it like a lecture to a student more than it was a debate. And the people who took that information and was like, well, I think the student won this. Yeah, because the teacher sounded like a teacher some dumb shit. That's the thing is they expect the debate to be this civil. They wanted to be, it sounded like they wanted it to be a fucking roast battle. I did get into it with some of the people who asserted what they wanted out of this as a format. And their complaint was that Richard Wolf wasn't familiar with the Twitch stream format, which I find to be bizarre. But the format seems to be this civilized back and forth. You kind of hold your hands and listen to the other person make their point. And then you lure those people into a false sense of security. You make them overextend their position and then you fucking dunk on them. This is the debate bros part of bread tube sock dem left or whatever you want to chalk it up to. But it's really toxic and it's like bad politics mixed with like bad ways of thinking you're spreading politics. Because like the only way these people get more followers is by debating other people and trying to get those other people to come over to their stream. And in order to do that, they have to like announce some amount of civility before like calling them a name like an imperialist and then signing off and getting some more followers. But like Richard Wolf doesn't do that. <laughs> he just lectures to somebody 
because they let him lecture to them. Yeah, and I mean, kind of off of that, with how much of their general business model informs their ideology, Yes, is yeah. uh, how much they are always going off about the importance of what they call like restorative justice and rehabilitating Nazis and whatever, to this very, I would say, uh, Christian ideology degree where it's, like this very redemption without having to actually do anything mm-hmm. to be redeemed. You just have to say you're re- redeemed. You have to redeem someone in a debate before you can call them a name. And right? I'll also, pl- well, I mean, I think the simpler explanation is simply that uh, their audience is all a bunch of quote unquote reformed Nazis. Yeah, I would agree with that. And so they are pushing this constant refrain and they they're never clear about like what a Nazi even means, you know, and it turns into this farcical thing because, you know, yeah, sure. Absolutely. You should allow for people to grow or whatever the fuck you want to call it. But commensurate to what they've done, if you're truly reformed, you might want to show that in some way. That actually feeds into what the most of the debate was about. I assume you didn't watch it, Marlo. No, absolutely. But Bunny can probably back me up because I know Marlo... uh, chooses to be shrouded in ignorance when we're having these discussions. But the, where the magic comes from, baby. <laughs> but the discussion for about like two-thirds of this debate were the definitions of socialism oh, yeah, and capitalism. And I, I watched the post-debate thing with Destiny and his goal seemed to be to get Richard Wolf to admit that he's a liberal because Destiny is a liberal and he wanted to show to everybody how socialism as Richard Wolf claims it to be is actually just another form of capitalism. Well, yeah, he was arguing that socialism was like kind of a meaningless label. Uh, Wait, Richard Wolf was or? No, no, no. Uh, fucking Destiny. The, the reason it started is because he was like, no one knows what it means. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then all these socialists I debate with can never give me a firm definition. I get that people can be vulnerable to this way of thinking where he's like, oh, it's just labels. And I think he said something about people need to think about data driven solutions or policies or something like that, which that term data driven sets off a flag for me. It's something that they said a lot when I went to interview at a charter school that did did not hire me. That was their big thing is that all their data-driven data-driven methods, data-driven blah, blah, blah. And then I saw them like just employing really weird, almost 19th century-esque discipline techniques on these elementary school children. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this does not seem particularly data-driven or innovative. Uh, it just feels like the data is massage-driven. Because you just kick the kids out who aren't going to help you hit your numbers so you can... Well, it, it sets up a system of rationality. Yeah. When you say when you say data-driven, when you say 
when you quote polling, when you quote a dictionary. It, it, well, yeah, you're like, I'm being scientific or I whatever. Had, I had somebody like, quoted, no. I had somebody looked up the definition oh, of God. debate. They looked up the definition of Jesus debate Christ. to tell me that this should have had more back and forth in it. And oh I'm like, God. you <laughs> fucking cuck. I'm talking, I'm talking to you, the person that made that comment. You fucking cuck to authority had to go look up the 10 definitions of debate and came back to me and said, well, there should have been more back and forth. And really, Richard Wolf didn't fulfill the definition of a debate. He just lectured. This wasn't a debate. And I'm like, well, it seems like that was an effective debate tactic. <laughs> Again, is your goal... They claim that debate will lead to the truth. So... If one person is able to give more compelling information that the other person cannot answer, then surely... Well, my whole thing was that it's not a discussion between two people. It's not that. It's two sets of propaganda. And the goal of a debate is to propagate that propaganda. And if you can do that the best by cutting off your opponent, by talking over him and eating into his time the most, then you've fucking won the debate. Like, that just means the other person is a bad debater. It doesn't matter about the substance. It doesn't matter about the content. It matters about how much you can dominate the other person's speaking time. Because at the end of the day, the more time that is allotted to you, the more likely it is that like people are going to hear what you have to say and not the other person. Yeah. I, I walked away from that debate watching maybe three quarters of it. And I don't know what anything that destiny believes like well, any I mean, of his points. I don't know, man. It's just like all of these dipshits have the same like vibe to me where destiny like, and Vouch. Yeah. Like where I'm like, when did it happen that you got it in your head that communism, Marxism is so popular that you've got to get in there? You know, I think I did catch the part where Destiny said, like, so you admit it, Marx is a fraud and an absolute failure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Professor Wolf is like, uh, I don't think I ever. What, what I think you said that was a stupid caricature, you fucking nitwit. Let me lecture to you about the transition from feudalism to capitalism and then show how that will lead from the transition to capitalism to socialism. And, and Destiny was like, stop t giving me a history lesson, old man. He's like, bitch, I'm going to put my knee on your neck. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he said that. Dude. Yeah, audible. <laughs> <laughs> Quote by Richard Wolf. Dun, dun. Yeah, so that, that had me in a tizzy because I kicked up some storms. Destiny like, was basically like, why would you even bring up the history? As if it's just not relevant to the shit that Destiny was saying just moments before. <laughs> like <laughs> literally said that he, he's like the history does not matter when it comes to capitalism or oh wait the other thing was whether or not the democrats were a socialist party and then richard wolf went into like a, a lecture about the past hundred years of the democratic parties like that history has no relevance as to whether or not they're a socialist party and i'm like 
It absolutely does. How can you say that the last hundred years do not inform the political mm-hmm. ideology of a political party? Oh, I just wanted to just fucking yeah. hang myself out a window. That's what they want you to do, Steve. Yeah, do yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, the other thing he said <laughs> is that slavery has nothing to do with capital. capitalism. Capitalism, yeah. Yeah, that was in the after post-show uh. If you think that, like, I, I just think almost anything you have to say in the context of politics or history or whatever is irrelevant. If you feel like these things exist in totally different spheres and whatever, it's you want to believe that because you love capitalism and you're a racist. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like, it's so absurd to me. What's your opinion of Richard Wolf? I know Marlo's opinion that he's like a revisionist ass co-op. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guy. But what's your opinion, Bunny? I mean, I'm not that familiar with him. I just know he's like a Marxist economics dude. Which, so I'm like, cool, do it, man. Because I hate economists. So. Be a Marxist one. I like it. Um, But yeah, I really, like, I pretty much just know of him tangentially. And this is the most I've ever heard him talk is me watching part of this debate. He's got a pretty good show, Democracy at Work, which Mm kind of gives weekly economic updates where he adds his Marxist commentary on large economic Mm -hmm. events that happen or cultural events, but mostly economic events, which are, as Marlo has pointed out, pretty good for like socialism 101. uh, I think that Richard Wolff is exactly the perfect person for that mission of radicalizing the libs or, you know, maybe giving some arguments to bring someone of one persuasion over to a more left position. I think he's great for that. Which is what he did for this debate by taking up so much of his time. Yeah, Uh, think he does the thing that bread tube or whatever the fuck that bullshit is claims to do. Which is why I know a little bit more about him. I've listened to him talk about Althusser. He is really into Althusser, who, if you didn't know, killed his wife. Also Absolutely murdered his wife. Murdered his wife. plagiarism, lied but, about research. But, but, but guys, but, who didn't? Yeah, I mean, he, he's French. Like, <laughs> like he, okay, we should put an asterisk. Murdered his wife, asterisk, he's asterisk French. Asterisk, French. He, he also suffered heavily from mental illness all his life, which led to the unfortunate. I mean, he was institutionalized for like Was it that or was it that he was French? (laughs) But he did write some pretty influential books and essays. More importantly, I think he that he was like a teacher to so many more influential names. He taught Foucault. Yes. Uh, He was friends with Derrida and taught Richard Wolff, who was born in France and grew up in France. And I have a copy of Rethinking Marxism, which I found in an old bookstore, which I was like, oh, it's the journal started by Richard Wolff in the 80s, 70s and 80s, that was dedicated to proliferating the ideas of Althusser. This seems like a perfectly acceptable thing to happen in the 80s and 90s for, 
you know, at the end of history for the left was, you know, we're not Trotskyists, but we're also like indebted to Lenin to some degree and uh, really interested in this French guy who, in just a sentence, his basic idea was like, how do we discuss the material effects of ideology? How does ideology affect the material and the institutions around us? That's pretty much Althusser in a sentence. And so I think it makes sense that Richard Wolff became an economist and then applied the institution of economics to Marxism in a similar way as Althusser had related between. And it's always frustrating to me that people don't bring up this when they interview him. But uh, if he ever w wanted to come on our podcast, I certainly would pick his brains about it. Yeah, Richard will come on our podcast. Open invitation to talk about your debate with destiny. We need to counter the propaganda, first and foremost. And I'd love to talk and, to you uh, about... you and me need to clear the air about a couple of few things. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> he did go on Hakeem's YouTube and discussed like his infinite co-op socialism and the transition from capitalism to socialism via revolutionary uh, co-ops. So okay. maybe listen to that and then formulate some questions. Yeah, sure, sure. Sounds yeah. good to me. We do got to wrap it up because I have a online show at midnight. Uh, right. Okay. So, Very exciting. Uh, which it will already be done, listeners. But anyway... All right. Uh, see you. See you. Yeah.